thought today we'll start with prayer, so the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we thank you that throughout the centuries people have sought for you. We thank you that in the 17th century many were seeking for you, and today we'll be talking about them, be our connection between the thinking and the love that has been poured into your Bible and into your search for for God. And all this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So I am starting a kind of, it's a complex subject, and I've worked on this most of my adult life, so I thought maybe I'll just tell you the story of how this all began. I've been working on these emblems for, I hate to almost say it, but it's been about 18 years now. (laughs) And this is only the second time I've talked about them. (laughs) So I am very, um, very open to your questions and your ideas, and I have a pen here and I might jot something down. And um, this is my home base. I love St. John's. So if you want to say to me you're not being clear or I need more information, please do. It will help me (laughs) because when I'm writing this, I'm writing for people I'll never see and I'll never interact with. So if, or or if you want, if you find something interesting, just speak up and uh, interrupt me at any time. I'm very comfortable uh, breaking whatever, stopping whatever I'm saying to listen to you. So at the end of the 90s, I was working on my PhD at University of Virginia, and I had to choose my PhD dissertation topic. And that's always, you know, where the rubber hits the road for PhD (laughs) students. And so I was with a bunch of other PhD students, and we were all a bunch of anxiety-ridden people, like, oh, what am I going to write about? And so I was walking across campus one day, and I thought, what am I going to write about? And then all of a sudden I thought, I read this book many years ago when I was like in high school called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, and it's by Hannah Whittle Smith, and she was a Quaker who lived in Pennsylvania after the Civil War. And the, the title is kind of odd, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, but it's a very beautiful little book about how to ha- handle very difficult experiences. You know, right after the Civil War was a very miserable, unhappy time, and she learned how to have faith and trust during this time. And so I was thinking, well, who influenced her? And so I went and did my little computer searches, and I realized the woman was Jean Guion. And so she is the woman I ended up writing my PhD about, and then, um, and so I have books about that. And I'll tell you a little bit about her, but then as I was finishing my PhD, I was in Paris for an extended stay, and what a gloriously happy time. <laughs> and so I went to the National Library in Paris, many, day after day after day, doing my research and reading Jean Guion's paper. She was a French woman from the uh, 1648 to 1717. This is the 300th anniversary of her death, which is one reason I planned this. And... Um, So I got to be friends with a research librarian, which I tell every PhD candidate, your best friend is your research librarian. (laughs) Do not treat them like a cog. (laughs) Sit and have coffee with them. And so, like, my last day there, he said, well, have you seen the emblems? And I said, emblems? What are you talking about, you know? He says, well, she also did emblems, and nobody really knows much about it. And I said, well, I've never even heard of it. So he printed this whole big book up, which I'll present part of it to you today. There's actually a um, proof of it in the back. And he says, these are her emblems. And he, um, he printed it all up. There was several hundred pages. And I 
the colors in Paris that year were pink and orange. You know, all the, all the women were in pink and orange, and I had a big pink bag. So I put all these printed papers in my big pink bag and carried it back to the United States. And every time I looked at it, I just got totally confused. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and so it took me about five years to get into it. And so finally, I made some sense out of it, and I will share what sense I've made out of it. So I'll start with emblems, and then I'll tell you about the people who did them. So an emblem is where you take a piece of text and an illustration, and you combine it, and you have a new meaning. So it's not the printed word, and it's not the scene picture, but it's a combination of the two that creates a new meaning. And that's what are called emblems. And a very recent discovery in scholarship is very exciting, is that every book that was published, like in the 1500s and the 1600s, were emblem books. And yet, with the rise of the Enlightenment in the late 1700s, um, emblem books fell out of fashion and have really only been rediscovered in the 21st century. So a lot of the work going on in emblems is from Amsterdam. And so I have um, colleagues and competitors over there working right now <laughs> on emblems. And I sometimes write them. But it's, uh, everyone is trying to still kind of come to grips with this uh, passion for meaning that the 17th century had. So in the 17th century is considered to be one of the most religious centuries of all time. It was totally acceptable to be faithful, to talk about the heart and the soul and the mind and loving God and the passion and the vitality that come from that. And so a lot of people uh, poured their hearts into emblems. So is that fairly clear? I mean, it's just an abstract idea, but um, I'll show you in a second what it means. So... Um, so, M, so Otto von Wien, and he had a, is the artist here. And I, I hope all of you have a little handout with some of his pictures in it. So Otto von Wien was the leading artist in Amsterdam, um, very, very popular and well-known and busy. He was the teacher for Peter Paul Rubens, who is, of course, more well-known than his teacher, Otto von Wien. But Otto von Wien worked... Um, over and over again on mythical subjects and religious subjects. So he did all of these paintings that you can still see, you know, of course, not on the internet now, but um, of uh, like Athena, the goddess of wisdom, or uh, people that are struggling or in war. Or, and he was very, very talented at drawing human bodies, which, of course, came out of the Renaissance. He had all this new perspective, so he did engravings. Now, the 1600s is also known for a time of religious wars, of course, and there was conflicts, and there's famines, and there's wars going on, so like any age, there's a lot of really what we would call evil things going on, and he received a letter from Princess Isabella who from the Spanish Netherlands, and she wrote him a letter, and she said she wanted to know more about God's love. And he, she said to him, you've written and drawn many, many pictures about human love. I want to know about the love of God. And so he took this to heart, and he did seven, or 60 engravings, 60 engravings of divine love, which are the ones that you have now. And he worked out a whole series of emblems on divine love. Take Most of the scriptures 
that everyone has a little scripture or some sort of phrase with it from the Bible, trying to show the spiritual journey of the human soul from beginning to end. And so he did these really magnificent uh, pieces of art. And then they published it in Amsterdam very inexpensively because they wanted to get this into the hands of everybody. And so all through Europe, it was considered to be the best-selling book of the 1600s. And the peasants had it up to the kings. So it was not a book, a lot of books at that time, just the aristocracy could afford it, but they made this for everybody. What divine love would feel like or look like or the experience of it. So that's Otto van Veen. He received all these on, um, honorific titles, some in Latin. Um, and so he did this and it was just everywhere. Okay. So 50 years later, um, about 50 years later, 1648, Jean Guion was born in France. Otto van Veen was from Amsterdam. And she was very much a member of the aristocracy. Her father was a mayor, um, very, very wealthy man. Uh, she was, uh, tried to be, a, the Queen of England tried to adopt her to be part of her court. She uh, traveled with the, met with the royalty. Her family was extraordinarily well-connected. But her family had a lot of sense of the righteousness of God. And so when uh, French politicians fell out of favor in Paris, or they were threatened to be incarcerated. The Guillaume family was a place that sheltered them and hid them so they would not be killed or incarcerated unfairly because of their political views. So she had a, so when she was growing up, she said if her parents brought in some man late at night and he was living in a little room in the cubby, she was never to talk to him and she was never to know his name. So it was a very unusual family, because of course at that time, uh, people had no rights. If you fell out of favor politically with the king, you could be incarcerated for the rest of your life or killed. Um, and so her family was un extraordinarily unusual. Uh, they had the connections, they had the money, they had the historical name, but they had a real sense of the righteousness of God and they got asked us to do the right things to help people. But when she was 15, she, her parents... Um, made a, a decision that is always lamented throughout history, but uh, she was a beautiful little girl, and she wanted to be a nun, and she went to her father and said she wanted to be a nun, and this really scared him because he did not trust the church a lot. Uh, you know, the church at any time has, you know, has corruption in it. He didn't want it. He said it wasn't a, a decent life for a little girl to become a nun at that time. Um, and so... The wealthy man next door was about 40 years old. His wife died, and he wanted to marry Jean. So she was placed into an arranged marriage without even being told what happened. She signed the papers. And, um, and then she was married to this man who apparently was very intelligent and had some good sensibilities, but a 40-year-old man with a 15-year-old girl is just not a marriage. And then she had to live with his mother also. And so by the, uh, she had a very unhappy time and was considering suicide when she was 19. She was pregnant with her second child, and she thought she couldn't go on anymore. And she um, went to a monk and she told him that she, would, uh, she couldn't live this life anymore. And he said to her, it's because you're seeking your answers outside of you, and the answers are all within your heart. So he says, it's because you're seeking the answers outside of you, and the answers are all within your heart. 
And so she began a life of what she called interior faith, interior prayer. And so she made a little room in her mansion where she used to go and pray every day to the great anger of her husband. <laughs> and then she started, her personality started developing, and she kind of stood up to him, and he was refusing to let her go to church. So she started going to church, and she started praying, and then um, she started raising her kids, which at that time was totally scandalous. Why was it scandalous for her to be raising her kids? <laughs> Having lunch, you know, making sandwiches, <laughs> running around with them. Because it told the world her husband didn't have enough money to have servants. <laughs> you know? It was a social stigma for wealthy women to raise their kids. So she says, no, I'm going to raise my kids, and I'm going to go to church. So she kind of lived this very simple life. And then all these peasants were starving in France. And at one year, they think 600,000 starved. 600,000. And so she started making bread, and she made, would make like 100 loaves of bread a day, and she'd get in her little carriage, and she and her kids would go deliver them all over rural France. So she was a very unusual woman, but she was very active, and her husband began to get very fond of her. <laughs> you know, He saw that people were gossiping about her all the time, but she, was, she had a lot of personality. And so then I'll tell you one story about him, and then we'll move on, but... Um, so then the, the brother of the king, Louis XIV, decided he wanted the Guillaume money. And so, um, and so there was some lie going on, and there was you know, some lawsuit, and so the man was panicked and having a nervous breakdown because they're going to lose the fortune to the royalty. And so she, Jean walks in, and she goes, you know, um, she goes, honey, you know, my dad knew a lot of judges, and I'm really smart. <laughs> and so I'll study the law and talk to them. And so he finally said yes, so he let his wife represent him in court. <laughs> Isn't that a wild story? <laughs> and so, well, I'll tell you, so I'll drag it out of it. So. so he gave her a carriage, and every day she went and talked to her. Her dad was, like I said, extraordinarily well-connected. And she went and worked with the judges library and so when she had questions she'd wander over and then she'd study the law and then she'd ask and then she'd study the law and, and so um and he was being made totally fun of if you can imagine and because a woman at that time was considered legally two-thirds of a man so when she walked into court she was two-thirds of the opposing lawyer well she went to court and she won she won and so they saved their fortune and, um, and uh, of course, but people were just stunned. But she had aroused tremendous anger everywhere. You know, she was, she was a victorious woman and, and made a lot of men look very stupid. So the man, her husband died, and then she was left kind of vulnerable with a ton of money. And, um, and so then the Catholic Church was like, oh, give us the money, and we'll take care of you. You can become a nun. And then all these men were showing up, oh, we are deeply in love with you, marry us, you know. <laughs> and her daughters are like, wait, they don't love you. They want our fortune. And so she put out a public notice that there would be no more marriages in her life. And then she went to the same judge and tied all the money up in trust for her kids. And then, um, and then it just got really outrageous. But the... Um, King Louis XIV's bishop, Bishop Boussouet, had her arrested for heresy because she was writing books about the Christian faith. Then they incarcerated for a year or two, and then they let her out. And then they, she kept on writing books, and then he said any woman that would write books is a witch, and then he incarcerated her again. And then they let her out because King Louis XIV's wife was very fond of Jean Guillon. And then um, finally, Louis XIV had her arrested as a political prisoner 
which was terrible news because a political prisoner had no uh, right to know what you were charged with. It didn't have to be legal. It just was what they called a secret letter, a letter de cachet, <coughs> where they, they would come in the middle of the night, they present the letter from the king, and you were gone. And so she spent um, 10 years incarcerated, including five years in the Bastille. So the Bastille is considered to be one of the worst prisons of all human history. They, in the basement, they, they developed uh, places, instruments of torture. They did 12, 14 interrogate hours of interrogation. You had no right to know what you were charged with and, of course, no lawyer. So you were going through these it, you know, tremendously long interrogations without even an idea what they were looking for. And so you had no way to parse your answers. So the poor thing, I mean, uh, people were even at the time, so England jumped into this fight because it was very well known. It was called the Great Conflict because they said, Jean Guion says, you know, we need to be about the pure love of God and now they've incarcerated her. So Oxford started collecting all her books because they thought any second she was going to be burned at the stake. And so they, and uh, Cambridge jumped in and they, uh, England was really in full gear collecting her writings, smuggling them out of France time of high drama before they killed her, and, uh, but they never did kill her, and that's another long story. I'll tell you why but later, but, but, um, but the story is that she survived the Bastille five years, including several years in solitary. So she had, at first they had these young women to watch her, and so they would bring them in and put them in a room to watch her, you know, do her witch rituals was what they were waiting for. And, um, and then the women started getting pneumonia and dying, you know, and, and um, so she would be there when they were dying, and she, they would all say, no, she's really a very nice woman. She sits here and sings all day. So she said she kept her sanity by singing, and she said she was a little bird in a cage singing to God, and so she sang and she prayed. She wrote when they get her letter. Um, and so she finally wrote the head of the Bastille a letter saying, please don't put these young women to watch me. They get sick and they die because this is a very unhealthy place. And here Jean is in her 50s and she survives it, 40s and 50s. And but, but, So they came to let her out, her kids. Her, she had a daughter who deeply loved her. Her son, her was, uh, older son, was very embarrassed of her, and that goes down in history. He was really embarrassed of his family name because he was the son of the woman that was incarcerated. But, um, the, um, but the daughter loved her and kept writing letters about her, and then the King Louis XIV's wife jumped into gear again and got her out finally. But they came to get her out, and her health was entirely destroyed. You know, she couldn't walk. Um, she was just lying there. But her mind was intact, and that's what people wrote down in history. She's one of the few people, if not the only one, to spend that many years incarcerated in solitary and come out with her mind intact. Okay, so that's my background, and we're going to run out of money. But one reason she said she kept her mind were the emblems of Otto Van Veen. They let her have a book. And so she would go through these pictures, I'll show you in just a second, and she would pray them, and she would write poems about them, and, um, and then she said that she would sing, and she would quote scripture, she could remember it um, every day. And she, so she had like a schedule of things she went through, and she's, but she was very honest with God, so she said she would wake up incarcerated again, you know, and 
She said every morning her first line was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? She did Psalm 51. And then she, from there she would go into you know, songs of praise. and um, She knew her Bible backwards and forwards, which was very lucky. Her father had let her read the Bible, which was unusual in itself. And so um, she had a whole schedule of doing things to keep her mind and soul and spirit alive. So anyway, after she got out, she, sp she lived about another um, 14 years, very close to her daughter, and she wrote, and she wrote, and she wrote, and she wrote. And the Quakers from Pennsylvania used to send people over there all the time to talk to her. <laughs> and so um, that's how I have found her, was through the Quakers of Pennsylvania that still acknowledge their influence by Jean Guion. Because she said, in quiet you know God. In love you know God. In your heart you know God. It's not something external, it's within your heart. Okay, so she, she and Otto Van V never met. They, he died, you know, before she was even born. But together they created emblems, which is an illustration and a poem that ha that's supposed to give meaning to us. So any, before I move on, any th thoughts about any of that or questions? or Yes. We know you've, you've stated exactly what she said. She said that um, she needed all of these, what she called them tests, to actually find God at the depths of her being. Yeah. And she said that, um, oh, so that's a, it does, it's another kind of funny story. When I would read this in French in Paris, I was thinking, am I translating this correct? Then I would check it out. Yeah, I am. So they came to get her out of the Bastille, <laughs> and she wasn't expecting it, right? And they said, You're, we're going to give you your freedom. King Louis XIV has signed the letter giving you freedom. She goes, oh, no, 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 I'm perfectly happy here. <laughs> and they said, what? <laughs> they said, oh, no, I found God here, and I, you know, I'm getting old, I'm sick. Just let me stay here. And so they actually said, you can have a little apartment in the back if you really want to stay here. Because they liked her. They said she was never a moment's problem. And then her daughter said, you're not staying here, Mom. <laughs> We're taking you home. So they got a litter, and they put her, they, a stretcher, right? And they put her on a stretcher and took her out and then nursed her for, it took her about two years, but she started walking again. But no, she said the same thing. She says she was very thankful for all these problems. And uh, she said without them, she wouldn't have made her discoveries. But I'm, I, I, I'm sensing part of your question is something I think. You know, thank, thank goodness none of us will be in the Bastille, <laughs> you know. But you know, they tore that one down in the, you know, the French Revolution. But, um, but we can benefit from what she learned. <laughs> so, okay, so before I do these, so there's one, uh, there's one idea that has helped me with this. So William James was a great Harvard psychologist with the varieties of religious experience in the early 20th century, and he loved Jean Guion. He said she was a happy woman, and he proved, she proved everything he was writing about religion. But he said, so he says this, he says that we live in two, a two-story universe, so the first story universe is, are our lives and the worlds that we know. You know, our work or our families or our struggles or our health or 
whatever, we, that's our first story universe. Our senses tell us that. But William James said there's a second story universe, and he put it very, and that's the universe of God in heaven. And he puts it very clearly. He says every time we have faith, we're walking up a flight of stairs, and we can see our life through the second story universe. We can see reality through the second story universe. So, <clears throat> you know, when we worship and we have a moment of faith, we can see things a little differently. Or when we look at another person with love, you know, we're seeing through the eyes of the second story universe. Or when we see there's difficult experiences out there, but they have meaning and purpose, and we're learning something from them, and we're being transformed by them. That's the second story universe. So is that fairly clear? Is that pretty clear? So he said when he looks at things like this, he sees the intersection of t the two universes, the um, first story and the second story universe. The first story universe of her being in the Bastille. The second story universe of God still loving her while she's incarcerated in the Bastille. And she says this moves in our heart. So I, I don't want to get too abstract, but the heart has the power of wanting to know and to love. And that's the two powers that she said humans <coughs> have. So we can learn something and we can love something. And when we do that, we're a healthy person. We are letting our heart lead us to fulfillment. So let me just show you some of these pictures. Okay. And, then, um, and then I was going to read it. She wrote poems about everyone. I thought I'd just read a little bit of the poem. But we need to talk about them. They're pictures very influenced by the Renaissance. It's all symbolic language. Um, and it's all ideas about how God loves us in this world. Let me turn the light off. So Otto Van Veen did 60 of these. So this is just the beginning one, but I'll show you the. So he, um, Otto, Jean Guion kept saying, we are already in relationship with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, and that we have a human soul, which is our center of awareness. And the soul can be aware of God. So this is his first emblem. And he just calls it, we need to begin, you know. We need to begin relating to uh, divine love. And you'll see uh, how it says divine love in Latin above the little boy's head. Sometimes that's called the uh, child Jesus, uh, depending, on how, uh, depending on when he was writing about it. So they, he wrote the little girl is the figure of the human soul. And you'll see underneath it anima, which in Greek means soul. And then the little boy is um, supposed to be... Uh, divine love reaching out for the human soul. And you'll see in the background um, great storm, a great storm going on, and people are drowning or they're reaching their hands up pathetically for help. Um, it's dark, it's windy, and then you have divine love reaching out for the soul. So each of you, the wonderful thing about emblems is there's no right or wrong interpretation. They kind of reach us at a different place because of our personalities and experiences. But any reactions to that, or do you see anything in particular you notice about it? Right, right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's usually considered to be, you know, divided in half. Human life is always a storm, you know, at some level of our being. And so you have a storm, but then 
where divine love is and it's peaceful. You know, it's sturdy. You see the road where the soul is lying. Uh huh. Yes. Um, it sometimes has a, that's a bow and arrow, I think, actually there. Though there are swords in this, that's a good point. So divine love has a bow and arrow always and shoots it at human hearts. And uh, it's like Cupid. That's where the idea of Cupid came from, that when we, we can't love if our heart is closed off. But when we have an arrow through our heart of love, then our heart is open and tender. And that's supposed to be part of the healing that you know, it's, we are in trouble when our hearts are hardened, but when they're open and tender, then we can love. But you'll see the bow and arrow all the way through, which is a good point. <laughs> right, and that, yeah. You know, that's another good point. And the Trinity is actually, um, in earliest Christian writings, like right from the beginning of the church, the Trinity was referred to as the sun, S-U-N. And so you'll see that through these paintings. So would you like to hear a little bit of what she wrote about this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The little boy? No, I think you're making a profound point, which is that, um, that Otto Van Veen and Guion were saying God's love is complex. <laughs> you know, it's a, I, think, I think of it kind of like elf-like. It's not simplistic, is it? It's not like just a past... It's not angelic. It's not angelic, no. But, she, but Guion and Otto Van Veen are saying our relationship with God is full, a full one, <laughs> you know, it's, he comes and asks things of us and shoots an arrow at our hearts and yet supports and loves us. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at. So this is, um, this is just some of her words about it. I was ready to perish. My loving Father touched all my many evils. By your healing hand, you opened my eyes, broke my change, ending my misery, and making me happy. So that's what Guion wrote about the emblem. So together, that would be a new meaning. And I like what you say about, you know, the facial expressions all the way through are fascinating. They're very complex. Okay. So this is a very controversial one, and I really love this one. <laughs> so I choose it. So Otto Van Veen is one of the few artists that would have the nerve to try to uh, paint God the Father. <laughs> Michelangelo, of course, did it himself. You know, but very few since then will ever try to render God the Father. And I, so this is to be God the Father, then the, the kneeling soul, and the God the Son is saying, hey, this is my soul and I'm presenting this to you father and the, uh, and then the soul is being adopted so and this is of course all very strictly scriptural it's all from the scriptures when we uh, love Jesus Christ or we we are adopted by God the father what do you what do you guys think of uh, the rendering of God the father <laughs> you laugh <laughs> well, it's pretty well done Ah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And that Otto Van Veen knew how to render that. That's right, that's right. 
He looks nice, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He's like a cool guy. <laughs> he is cool. He is cool. Yeah, you know, when you laughed, I thought, I laugh every time I see this. First off, the gutsiness of trying to show what God the Father looks like is kind of amazing. But he looks so nice. You know, yes, uh-huh. Right, right. The, the soul will grow wings all through these emblems so that by the end she's got big wings and she grows herself. But the wings are a symbol of the awakening soul and heart, you know. Yeah. So it, but it's trying to show that interior, her heart is getting stronger and purer. Her, she's, she understands more. She's thinking more. She has more confidence. And so the wings start to grow. Yeah. Sign of holiness. And that's another good point that Guillaume says, you know, God, when God visits us, he makes us holy, like, because he is holy. H-O-L-Y. He is holy. Yeah. Well, okay, now, the, remember, this is right after the Renaissance. I'm not entirely sure that's a church. It could be a temple of learning. There's no cross at the top, but there is a church way in the background. Almost everyone has a church. But these emblems are also very interested in technology. They have telescopes in them. They have some of the things they're inventing. Okay, I don't want to run it out of time. Um, so I just chose ones that I thought that I've been very fond of. But um, the love of God is the son of the soul. <clears throat> and so you, this is um, the divine love shining on the human heart and awakening it. Um, and then you see the sun coming up in the background. Yeah. Right, Joanne. The bow's getting ready. He's getting ready to shoot. That's right. <laughs> He's getting. <laughs> so for the for these for the seventeenth century and maybe for us too, the human heart is essential. The soul is essential, and so he's saying, look inside, find the answers, awakened, uh, come out of lethargy, and start acting and loving. And you see how the soul now, the soul looks, how does she look in comparison to the first one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She looks pretty happy, doesn't she? Almost like she's floating, yeah. So Jean uh, Guillen wrote about this. Dear bridegroom of my heart, your thoughts shine on me, filling my soul. Be my only savior. I burn forever in your sweet flame. You charm my heart with inspiration. I find happiness in your whole kingdom. So that the love of God is the son of the soul. Okay, but now we're getting into, yes, uh-huh. That, I never noticed, you're right, like they're running to each other. Yeah, yeah, they're, I had never noticed that, you're right, yeah, they're running to each other. Well, it's a love. It's a, you know, the power of love. They're running to each other, right? Okay, but she's saying, you know, the relationship with God is, um, is, can be a very demanding one. And so this is based on J uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. And so now they're in a struggle. I mean, they, I'm skipping a lot because we're only going to go through like eight of them because of time. But um, so love has this divine combats. And so now they're, she's kind of, pulling against God, you know. 
What appears to my eyes? Is this action on earth or is it from heaven? Who will win? Will the conqueror have all the glory? I know not what to think of this new battle. Who is the captain and who is the soldier? If I could enter this celebrated duel, I find my happiness in my captivity. This divine conqueror deserves our celebration of his glory. What do you guys think of this one? I'm never quite sure what to make of this one. <laughs> okay, this is all debated still because scholarship is recently. Some people think it's a quill. It's some sort of feather, though. Is it a writing quill? Is it? Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. There's some great scholar on emblems who's uh, getting quite elder now in Baltimore, and I send him emails every so often, and we, you know, we go back and forth about this. I, I don't think anyone knows what to make of the feather, you know. It could be. That's kind of, some of the stuff I was thinking, because it's all Renaissance. They're learning so much. Their minds are changing. Or, it, or is it just like a tug of war? You know, I want to do this, you want me to do this, we're going to struggle. Yeah. Yeah, right. He had to put his bow and arrow, right. Which in another emblems, that's a good point. Um, in other emblems, you see him uh, receive arrows rather than shoot them. <coughs> so he's always, he, has the, he has the ability to fight, but he takes that ability away from himself. He disciplines that ability away to show the mercy of God, I think, yeah. No, he's not angry at all. Mm -mm. He's almost bemused. I think he almost wants her to win, you know. I think he, <laughs> you know, doesn't he? Yeah. We have to do this. <laughs> we got to clear the air here, yeah. You could definitely, yeah. Except they were, I mean, my impression of France at that time was they were kind of in sync, but I don't know. It was surely beginning to separate. It was surely beginning to separate, yeah. Mm hmm. My goodness, I think you, you know, I, there's a lot of really, there's a lot of wisdom there. Because it does mirror the sh uh, wings, doesn't it? Yeah. So maybe there is, um, the right, yeah. There is definitely symmetry there. I need to look at that. That's a, such a good point, yeah. And you see how the earth is all, like earthquakes and crevices. And, right. Yeah. Yeah, but it could be a struggle about knowledge about human knowledge and about science or about self-will. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a debatable one. We're going to run out of time. Let's see. So, but now they're kind of getting it together. And that she calls this the support of two united wills. And so the soul, look at her. She's come a long way, hasn't she? <laughs> she's, she's doing her work. <laughs> and so she's been... Um, so... Uh, 
so she's pulling a cart, and on the cart, I'll just, the symbols are usually thought to be an altar, an anchor, um, judgment scales, and a telescope. <laughs> so that kind of supports the science theory, too. That, yeah, so she's pulling it all, and he's watching. He's ready to give counsel, but she's doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the church is everywhere. Yeah. Maybe it's like the growing of civilization, too. You know, the. So Guillaume wrote, We want our wills joined and our desire united. A sincere obedience is our innocent pleasure. I'm sorry, but I'm looking at the clock. I'm going to have to go faster now. I, so this is one of my favorite. Love guards us from evil. Remember, tremendous wars in this century, every pe where people were dying. And so they have a battle with dead bodies in the background. And the poor soul is very, very troubled. But uh, love puts a like a shield over her, her head and is leading her away. Now, my guess is this helped Jean a lot in the Bastille. Yeah. Terrible things going on, and yet her mind was shielded. Her spirit was shielded. Um, let me see. She says, no, no, I fear neither the winds nor storm. With the protection of divine love, I feel a new courage. I am very moved by the poems. In fact, so I have proofs of this book is out in the back. So take one if you want. It's got all 60 pictures in it. I find the words have added a lot, though the pictures themselves are gorgeous. Yeah. Every time I, when I've been flying places and people are sitting next to me in the airplane, <laughs> they're all looking over my shoulder at the pictures. The pictures are captivating, you know. So. Love makes us generous. <laughs> And that one's pretty uh, apparent, you know. So the soul's becoming generous to others, and then pouring in. Uh, uh, divine love is pouring in. I like love makes us generous. Do you? Yeah. It really makes sense. It does. If you love something, you will be generous. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I there's and it opens once again. It relates to the opening of the heart. Yeah. Okay. I, this is probably going to have to be our last one. Love, but this is the one I wanted to get to. Love prepares the way to God. So this is the second rendering of God the Father. So you see the soul, and uh, see her wings have gotten bigger. She's leaning forward. She's excited. She's watching. And then divine love is watching with a palm branch in his hand. And then God the Father is coming down or is up on the mountain. You know, Joanne, you might be, that might really be it too. Yeah, you guys have been very helpful. Yeah, it could be a palm branch they were pulling rather than a feather. Yeah, yeah, the palm tree in the back, right? Isn't she? Doesn't she? <laughs> Every time I go through these, I love to see her growing up. You know, it's like, yeah, I was, yeah, I love to see her growing up. So this is what she wrote about this. Um, Whoever follows Jesus walks in his light. He has a torch in the darkest night. He makes our hearts all full of grace. As he leads, he assures and instructs. Although this beautiful way appears full of thorns, yet is easy and full of flowers. How sweet it is to walk in the divine way. <laughs>